decided what this is, and by God, we're going to find those things that fit it. Understand, this is battle. There's no attempt at the mutual seeking of truth. This is warfare. Most attorneys don't realize how, how they actually put the, the juries to sleep. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, we're now here with the August issue of Risk Management Monthly, and I don't know how it is where you are, but here in Michigan, where we're not used to hot weather, it's awful. Rick, how are you doing? Well, I'm in Southern California, Greg, and it's uh, as usual, it's perfect here. <laughs> this, yeah, this, that's exactly we, we, right. We sent you all the bugs. You guys are having this heat wave. You, you killed all the freaking corn. There's no corn. The corn now is, is three for a dollar out here. But that's about the worst of it. We're having a beautiful summer. And I see uh, on our Skype screen here, I see Mike Weinstock. Mike, thanks for joining us. This is We're going to do a bounce back issue uh, again. And Mike, you have a guest for us. I do. I'm very pleased to welcome Michael Zook. He's a medical malpractice defense attorney with Hirschfeld and Rubin in Los Angeles. And Mike and I have worked several times together at the All LA Conference and also at USC Grand Rounds just this spring. He's a great guy. He's lectured at medical conferences, and he's been a medical malpractice defense attorney for over 30 years. Good morning. And he likes doctors. Yeah. Very much so. Thank you. Michael, welcome. Michael, Michael. Welcome, welcome. Good morning. I would have been a doctor but for organic chemistry, and that's all I have to say. Well, you didn't miss much. <laughs> you didn't miss much. <laughs> well, he still likes doctors, uh, parboiled, French fried, however he can get them. So what's the case today for us, Dr. Weinstack? Well, you know, it's funny because to me, medical malpractice, when you think about trying to make yourself safer as a physician, as well as making the patient safer, there's two different parts of that. The first part, of course, is to try to get it right. You want to make the correct diagnosis. And we've done a lot of stuff in risk management monthly, and you guys have done an amazing job looking at some of those high-risk complaints and making sure the physician keeps the patient safer and then subsequently themselves also. But the second part of it is what I've always found is interesting, that sometimes what we think is a great chart, great documentation, great evaluation isn't necessarily the same way that would play out in the courtroom. So what we're going to do today is we're going to talk about a case that was a bounce back case, and then we're actually going to go into some of the actual trial testimony, objection overruled, sort of like when you listen to NPR and they're synopsizing a Supreme Court case, and they read the different questions that were asked the Supreme Court justices and how they answer the questions. And then we're going to have Michael Zook. He's going to give us some thoughts on each of these things. And we're going to look back at the initial evaluation and how things could have been done different to not only keep the patient safer, but also to provide the documentation in a way that would make this case defensible since it did go to trial. And we'll do this first part pretty quickly because we want to really focus more on the trial testimony. Okay, so here is our case. This is a case about a 42-year-old fireman who came to the ER with shoulder pain. The names have not been changed of the patient. They haven't been changed of the attorneys. This is all public record. The only thing that we did change is the name of the emergency physician as well as the name of the hospital. The patient, by light of a little explanation, is named David Likens. He's a father of three boys. His wife is named Jill. She's 15 weeks pregnant with their fourth child. He started working as a firefighter, worked his way up to a battalion chief. At the beginning of March 2000, he began to have some problems of his own after caring for others for so long. He had some severe left shoulder pain, and he went to the emergency department. So at 10.30 in the morning, it was documented complaints of left shoulder pain, and then there were some nurse's notes, which 
are basically illegible, except for that very first part, left shoulder pain. And that'll be important as we go through things a little bit. I'm going to read the exact documentation. We'll summarize the physical exam and other components as we go through. This is documented by the physician assistant. 42-year-old male firefighter was lifting patients yesterday, complains of left shoulder pain. He said he's unable to move his left arm. He had no trauma. He has only done lifting. He never had anything like this before. Review of systems is negative. Specifically, he mentions there's no chest pain, shortness of breath, diarrhea, or constipation, numbness or tingling of the extremities, or peripheral edema. As far as his past medical history, it's basically unremarkable. does not take any medications. Physical exam shows he's afebrile, the temperature of 97, his pulse is 111, respiratory rate is 18, and his blood pressure, 102 over 67. On his physical exam, and this is exactly how it's documented, patient alert and oriented. He's somewhat inappropriate as far as pain and physical examination in relation to complaint and history. He refuses to move his arm. He's in an extreme amount of pain when I try to move his arm or touch him, whether on his arm or on his clavicle, he has a good grip and able to flex and extend at the elbow and pronate and supinate at the wrist. Good sensation, pulses and capillary refill. So he gets an x-ray of his shoulder, comes back negative. He gets some medications in the ER, Demerol, Phenergan, and a repeat dose of Phenergan, and his vital signs are checked, and they've actually improved. His pulse has improved from 111, is now down to 102. Respiratory rate is still normal, and the blood pressure is almost identical with the systolic pressure of 102. So the physician assistant puts a progress note on. I spoke with the primary care physician who says, quote, the patient tends to sometimes overreact to his health care needs, end quote. And then he continues to summarize, it doesn't surprise him that the gentleman will not move his arm and the physical exam is not in proportion to the complaint in history. He's diagnosed with left shoulder pain and strain and prescribed Vicodin in a sling and has to follow up with his primary care doctor in two or three days. Now, I will note here that there is an attending physician note. So the attending physician obviously was called into the case, obviously discussed it, and then he put his own note. And I'm going to summarize this briefly. He went in he put a note that the patient had been doing lifting. The arm is very painful, range of motion. He's uncomfortable with any motion. This is very joint specific. There's nothing that makes me think this is a septic joint. Rick and Greg, you guys both know this case. You want to go first, Greg? Well, there are things here which I think were done correctly. They actually examined the shoulder. If I was thinking about some of the disease entities that can kill you, a pulmonary embolus, a myocardial infarction, a dissection of the aorta, none of those should actually cause pain in a shoulder so you cannot move it. I think the attending physician's comment that he has no reason to believe a septic joint is the best comment so far because if I saw somebody this age with a painful shoulder, I'd be thinking, God, does he have something in that joint that is going to be a problem? That's where that's where I would be thinking based on this examination. And they're pretty clear about that on the chart. What do you think, Rick? Well, I think that there is a couple issues. I think that it's really very dangerous to indicate that you think somebody is a symptom magnifier when you honestly don't know what's wrong. It just kind of helps paint a picture of uh, you going down this pathway whereby you're minimizing this patient's symptoms. The other thing is, is you have to acknowledge that you haven't seen very many, if ever, a patient who's got so much pain in their shoulder from some nondescript injury that there's not even a clear indication of an injury. Because we've seen things like supraspinatus tendonitis, where you have the painful arc thing. We've seen the, these other very specific shoulder disorders 
And this doesn't sound like one of them. It's very diffuse, and it is. You'd have to admit, uh, Greg and Mike, that this guy is four standard deviations off the bell in terms of things that you've seen in terms of people's shoulders. It's easy to be a Monday morning quarterback on these cases and say that guy's blood pressure is pretty low for a 40-year-old, but in hindsight, that's easy to say, but I don't know that I would necessarily fixate on that. But I'm one of these people that think people have better things to do than to go to the emergency department, and when they're there, we need to be particularly cautious. We're the worst first doctors. (laughs) Well, to play a little devil's advocate on your Monday morning quarterbacking, this guy's complaints were taken seriously. It's pretty unusual for a mid-level provider to actually evaluate a shoulder strain and get the physician attending involved to the point that they actually go in the room and put a note on the chart. Mm-hmm, I agree. You know, <laughs> I think that tells us two things. One is that was carefully done. But the other thing is there was something that just didn't sit right to the MLP. There was something that caused him to actually not only go to speak with the attending physician, but then ask them to go into the room. When you have that diagnostic uncertainty, that concern, obviously you need to be real vigilant about things. This is the role of the physician assistant is to have a sense of when to get the person in charge of the case involved. I think this is important. The other thing is I'd like to reiterate, Rick says it's like sort of a nonspecific finding, but I would point out in chest pain, if it's involving your heart, your lung, your aorta, you usually don't see exquisitely tender joints. I mean, I'm trying to think of the number of times in my 38 years that I actually had a palpably tender joint with any of the things that we think about in the chest, and it's relatively small. I agree with Rick that this is an odd finding, particularly in a firefighter, and they don't tend to be exaggerators of their pain. My experience with the fire department is they tend to be pretty rough and tumble guys. But I don't have a specific diagnosis, but I'm glad the attending got involved. So let's do this. Let me go through a couple of the risk management points, because it actually seems like a pretty well done chart, at least on the surface. And then we'll talk about what actually happened. Point number one, and this will come out at the trial, the nurse's notes, I told you, and we can't see that on the auto here, obviously, but the nurse's notes were basically illegible and the attending physician couldn't read them. What the nurse's notes actually said was complaints of left shoulder pain, chills, fever. The physician wasn't able to read those. So that's an important part. We always talk about that with risk management. Read the nurse's notes. And if you can't do it, go talk to the nurse to see what they actually wrote if you're still doing handwritten charts. Exactly. Point number two, the history is a bit inconsistent with the proposed mechanism. The patient had this severity of pain from lifting, but we never really correlate when the lifting occurred and when the pain started, except for several hours later. Did he have any pain whatsoever with the lifting? You know, it's, it's always like, I always make this joke, you know, the guy's got vomiting and diarrhea and he ate, ate at McDonald's. Well, so did 30 million people ate at McDonald's yesterday. Just because you ate there doesn't mean that that's what caused your symptoms. So this guy's been lifting all day, every day. Does that definitely mean that's a musculoskeletal pain from the lifting? Point number three, and I agree with Greg, if there was any consideration of cardiac etiology, asking just a few basic questions, is it exertional, any associated diaphoresis or dyspnea, going through those or even getting an EKG would be helpful with a man in this age group with shoulder pain. However, the symptoms really look like this is more of a mechanical muscular type of problem than a cardiac referred pain kind of problem. Number three, including conjecture in the note, we're going to talk about that later. Patient tends to sometimes overreact to his healthcare needs. 
we will see how that plays out in a little bit. So let's do this. We're going to go back to the future. We're going to talk about something that wasn't in the initial visit. And what happened actually earlier that day, so this is a bounce up as opposed to a bounce back, earlier that day the patient had been to an urgent care, 9.39 a.m. And you remember that he came to the ED at 10.30. So about an hour after he was at the urgent care, he went to the emergency department. He was actually sent there because of this shoulder pain. Now, when he was there, his pulse was 116, blood pressure 120 over 78, still a febrile. They documented possibly swollen, extremely tender, no redness, range of motion is zero, discussed with the ER, send him down there for evaluation. So that brings up a couple secondary risk management and patient safety points. The first one, when there's some diagnostic uncertainty and the patient is sent from somewhere else, if it's a primary care physician office or an urgent care or another emergency department, if there's some uncertainty, give a call to that doc. It's easy to do, and then maybe you'd see what they were concerned about or maybe the patient's not accurately relating to the symptoms that they had previously, and you're making a decision based on incomplete information. And the second one, the hospital was unable to find any records from the urgent care. They weren't able to find record of a call, and they weren't able to find the transfer sheet that was sent over. So this is a basic thing. Thou shalt not kill. Do unto others like you do unto yourself. Don't lose medical records. It's really hard to defend when that happens. So here's the bounce back. The patient was discharged from the ED at 1257. His wife took him to the pharmacy to pick up his prescription for Vicodin. On the way, they stopped for gas. David vomits and gets out of the car, pulls down his pants, and urinates on the gas pump. Jill still takes him home. His pain continues to increase. At midnight, he's asking for more pain medicine, 2 a.m., more pain medicine. He's moaning in pain at 3.30 in the morning. His wife calls the primary care doctor. They say, if it's that severe, go to the ER. But if not, we'd be happy to see you first thing in the morning. At 6.30 in the morning, he woke up. He wanted to take a bath before going to see the doctor, and he did that. At that point, his wife, Jill, noticed some redness and swelling of his arm up to the shoulder looking like a bruise. They went to the primary care office. The patient was acutely ill-appearing, and he was sent straight back to the ED, saw the same doctor. So this is 22 hours after the initial discharge. So less than a day later, he's back in the ER. At that point, his temperature is 91. His blood pressure is 93. He has an echomotic and some necrotic areas and crepitation on the chest wall. His pulse jumps up to 145. Pressure drops to 70. He gets pressures. He gets antibiotics. He's in some renal failure. He's taken straight to surgery. They do massive debridement, multiple surgeries. Unfortunately, the patient continues to worsen. He gets necrosis of his digits and bowel from the pressors. He's diagnosed with ARDS. He's on a ventilator. Exactly two weeks after his initial visit with his family in attendance, unfortunately, David passed away after they determined that there was no chance of him having any reasonable chance of survival. The final diagnosis necrotizing myositis, septic shock, acute renal failure, ARDS, and multi-system organ failure. This is a healthy 42-year-old guy. If we could summarize and look at the chart in two different ways, one is severe shoulder pain, was lifting patients, ibuprofen, Vicodin, sent him home. The second way is to look at it a little bit differently. A guy with fever and shoulder pain so severe, the range of motion is zero, sent from an urgent care to rule out septic arthritis, which it didn't happen to be, but it still was a infectious process. Let's do this, and I think this is gonna be really interesting as we go through it. I wanna talk about each of the plaintiff's allegations, and then we'll read some trial testimony to that, and then we'll have a discussion as to what we can do proactively in our documentation to try to prevent this type of argument later if we do have a bad outcome with one of our cases. First one is here. 
allegation number one, that the doctor didn't read the triage notes. Well, that's pretty obvious. They need to do. But let me read to you what actually happened, because it seems like the defendant changes his testimony. So here's the cross-examination of the defendant ED physician by the plaintiff attorney. Question. You never read the triage nurse's note before he was discharged, did you? Answer. I, when a physician's assistant presents a patient to us, it's my practice to look at the chart. Question. You did not read the triage note on March 2nd, did you? Answer. I don't recall, sir. Question. All right. Tell me today, and the ladies and gentlemen of the jury, what did Nurse Mayo's triage note say about David Likens? Answer. He had left shoulder pain, fevers and chills, and he was pale. Question, and did you know that on March the 2nd when you treated him? So this is when he came in for the first ED visit, which is March 2nd. Answer, sir, I'm not sure what I recall about reading that chart. Question, would you read to me the answer you gave at the deposition? The plaintiff attorney takes the deposition, which is the initial set of questions, and we can talk about that in just a minute here, takes that up to the defendant physician at the trial, and he is forced to read from his deposition testimony. And here's what he says. The best I can tell is this. There's a complaint of complaint of left shoulder pain, then the next thing I can pick up is symptoms started yesterday afternoon. That's all I can read. So, Mike Zook, you've been very patient and and quiet. I hope you're still awake over there. I certainly am. (laughs) Can you just briefly describe to us why we have depositions, the difference between a deposition and a trial, and how damaging is it if a physician testifies to something different in the trial than the answers they gave during the deposition? First of all, a deposition is sworn testimony taken during the course of litigation but before the trial. It has two basic purposes, to obtain information and to preserve testimony. Now, since it is under oath, it has the same force and effect as if it were trial testimony. If a witness, physician, defendant especially, testifies differently at trial, he can be impeached by his prior deposition testimony jury will be instructed that it has the same force and effect. And the problem if it occurs, if you change testimony or testify inconsistently, is it can be commented on during the argument phase at the trial by the adverse attorney. And also there will be a jury instruction advising the jury on how to assess the credibility of a witness. One of the things is changing testimony, testifying inconsistently. And if a doctor defendant specifically loses his credibility, It's typically game over. On this program, lots of people talk about the fact that you really go to court with two things as the doctor, your chart, your memory of the events, and your credibility. If either one of those can be sunk, I think you have a very difficult time in front of the jury. They don't mind if a doctor makes a mistake because we all make mistakes and not all mistakes are compensable. But what they don't like is that you've got a convenient change or loss of memory. My experience with that has been, I don't know what Mr. Zook has to say, but my experience with that has always been negative. That's my experience as well. The only exception would be on a very minor point, which the defense attorney can attribute to uh, just nervousness, the pressure of the litigation, or just such a minor point that the jury disregards it. That's especially the case if the personality of the plaintiff's attorney is not endearing to the jury. What our doctors need to know is that during deposition, you'll hear lots of objections being placed on the record. And the reason is, is that not everything said in deposition 
they are going to allow for impeachment purposes at the time of trial. Frequently, doctors don't understand why all these various things are being put on the record or to preserve the record. The reason that objections are placed is that there may be subjects brought up which could influence the jury in a negative way or one way or the other, which really have nothing to do with the case. Judges will have to decide what elements will be allowed in and will be known by the jury. The fact that the uh, patient is a felon, may be a drug abuser, may be this or that, may or may not be relevant to the case. Every attempt is made on both sides to influence uh, the opinion of the jury with regard to what happened. Physicians who are sort of naive to all these concepts sit back and don't quite understand why all the objections are made. This was brilliantly done by the plaintiff attorney starting out with this because he did want to start the jury to question the physician's credibility. I mean, this guy actually took good care of the patient. Now he's being forced to defend changing testimony between the deposition and trial with arguably one of the most important points of the case that he was making a decision about a patient who died from an infection. It was documented in the chart by the nurse that the patient had a fever, but he never knew about that. So Michael Zook, what is the damage done to this case from our lead off line of questioning? Well, it's an attempt and a very effective attempt to impeach the doctor's credibility, claiming he had knowledge about the nurse's note, shoulder pain, fever, and chills. And then earlier in the case when he was deposed, not perhaps appreciating the severity of the situation or not being prepared in depth, couldn't recall reading the chart. So that, that, so could, you know, that, that could hurt his credibility, especially if the plaintiff's expert highlighted the fever finding as critical to the misdiagnosed. Greg, have you seen that in, in trials? You've been in almost 2,000 trials. You have seen this where the, the deposition and trial testimony are different and the doctor gets skewered because of it? Oh, absolutely. I've been in about 750 depositions. I've been live to the stand 400 times. If they can find something where there's a reversal of testimony, I think it can be devastating to the doctor. I think most patients go into a case wanting to believe the doctor. I really do. Um, but it's yours to lose. And, and then little things come up like, wait a minute, the nurse wrote down the temperature. Doctor, you didn't bother to look at it. You know, they call them vital signs for a reason. These things planted early on in the trial and they beat the drum over and over again can be damaging to a doctor. No question about it. Okay, let's go to point number two. Allegation the patient's severe pain was discounted. As you remember, the mid-level provider documented their discussion with the primary care physician that the patient tends to overreact to his health care needs and then documented himself the patient is, quote, somewhat inappropriate as far as pain and physical examination in relation to complaint history. Continued cross-examination of the defendant e physician by the plaintiff attorney. Question, you saw excruciating pain, did you not? Answer, I saw a gentleman with severe left shoulder pain, correct. Question, well, let's describe it. I won't use my word. How did he seem to convey himself in regards to the amount of pain that he was in? Answer, he seemed to be in severe pain when the shoulder was moved. Question, did he appear to be overreacting? Answer, no, sir. I would never make that assessment. Question, it's in your medical records, isn't it? Answer, I did not dictate that. I would never make that assessment of a patient. I've been doing this for 19 years, and I've never accused anyone of overreacting or faking. Question, then, doctor, I'm sorry, Mr. Heller, that's the physician assistant, 
come to you and say that he had talked to his family physician and that this patient, quote, sometimes tends to overreact to his health care needs? Answer, at the end, sometimes after Mr. Likens had left, I saw Mr. Heller again, and he did mention that the telephone conversation had occurred. Question, did it help you to close the book on your diagnosis here? Answer, no, sir. Michael Zook, helpful or harmful? I think that the defendant physician answered the question very well. First of all, he did not agree with the term excruciating pain. That's a very important point. Most physicians would be prone to say yes or no, but he said, I saw the patient with severe pain, which is a little bit less connotation. With respect to the overreaction, I think he answered well that he did not assess the patient as being overacting or overreacting. And then claimed that he did not know of the uh, records indicating uh, the PA saying that, or the primary care physician, he's, he tends to be overreacting. So the fact that he says he did not close the book on his diagnosis based on that, I think is more helpful than harmful to the uh, defendant physician in this instance. Greg, it's always damaging when you have two providers who disagree with each other. And this is tough. The MLP document is something that the attending physician obviously would prefer wouldn't have been in the chart. How do you reconcile that when two different providers are taking care of a patient? Two ways. Different people are allowed to have slight differences of opinion, but if it's to the point where it's going to change the management of the case, you got to talk about that one. Secondly, in the broader perspective, it would be good for this doc to sit down with his PA and say, you know, here, we never write that on the chart. Uh, their pain is their pain. It's what they're feeling. You and I can't know what somebody else's pain is. I can't tell you how damaging it can be when you say, well, they're just sort of acting or overly dramatic, this, that, another thing. You know, I, I, I think that's, that's not a good position to be in. Although that kind of reasoning allows you to play down the significance of the physical examination that this guy has a shoulder that hurts, hurts on the least apparent movement and if you can make yourself believe that this guy is a symptom magnifier, it helps defend your erroneous diagnosis. And this is anchor bias. Uh, I mean, we've decided what this is, and by God, we're going to find those things that fit it. If you step back from this and say, firefighter, 40-some years of age, now you can't stand to squeeze or move his shoulder, that sounds something like something different to me. Those points are interesting because... You can look at this chart and actually see what happened, and you can actually tell what they're thinking. So here's a guy who was seen by the mid-level provider, wasn't exactly sure what was going on, so he actually called the attending physician. The attending physician actually not only discussed it, went and saw the patient and put a note on there. And then on top of all this, they called the primary care doctor. Now, who does all this for shoulder strain? I mean, nobody does. That would be absurd. You could imagine 250 times a day calling primary care doctor by shoulder strains, but they were concerned, more concerned, more concerned, and then the primary care physician says the patient tends to overreact to his health care needs. All of a sudden, less concern, sent the patient right out the door. So they've talked about the blue wall of silence with the police. I feel when I talk to a primary care doctor, oftentimes they make those comments, oh, that guy, or boy, he's very demanding. I don't put that in the chart. I feel that that's a conversation that I'm having with the primary care doctor, but am I somehow doing a disservice to my patient by not including that? I think it's important for us to be able to speak candidly, but that kind of candid physician conversation doesn't always need to be reproduced in black and white. Mike Zook, putting in there what the primary care doctor said, they said they said it. Should we include it in the chart? No, uh, I agree with your comments. 
because it's a subjective assessment by the primary care physician, you can't know unless you spend an hour with the guy in exactly what context he comes to that conclusion. Everything you put in the chart is going to be magnified, and the significance is going to be magnified, not only by argument, but by exhibits. They're going to blow it up or put it on the Elmo. The jury's going to sit there and look on it all day long. So you put pertinent information in the chart. You're taught to chart pertinent positives. That's mainly a subjective assessment that is kind of an off-the-cuff statement. And how does it really relate this diagnosis, I don't think it should go in the chart. And I don't think it's required by the standard of care to put that in. Well, let me read a just brief additional part of trial testimony. This was an additional witness that was called up later, a guy named John Bennett, who worked with David Likens. This is a pretty short question. In the years you worked with him, did you ever see him not do a job because of a strain or a sprain or anything like that? Answer, no. Question, was David Likens a complainer? Answer, never. Question, how about nausea? Anything like that? Was he sick or no? Question, you knew people that worked with him. What was his reputation for truth and veracity? Answer, everybody trusted him. You knew he meant what he said. He would say what he meant. For the plaintiff, thank you. I have no further questions. So they hammered this point home from the plaintiff aspect that this is a guy that wasn't a complainer. He wasn't a guy that had been in the ER 20 times in the last couple of years asking for Percocet. This was a guy that had never had these complaints before, had this severe pain. He was telling the truth about it. And I think that the plaintiff did a, a pretty thorough job of trying to make sure that point rang true to the jury. I want to interpose something here for just one second. You read something very interesting about what happened when this now gentleman I'm... was being taken home. He became confusional. When you've taken somebody and you're 10 minutes away from the hospital, you're filling a prescription and now they're becoming encephalopathic. He's confused. He steps outside the car and, and urinates on the gas pump. Again, this is the Midwest. This is odd behavior. Certainly here in the Midwest, we would not find that acceptable. Why didn't she take him back to the emergency department? Right. And this is going to come out later in the, the perception study, and that was an important point. So what happened is that actually this guy had uh, encephalopathy. It's called la belle indifference, basically encephalopathy from his necrotic process. It's the point that sometimes you might have someone with necrotizing fasciitis or myositis you know, sir, we got this bad infection. We're going to have to amputate your arm. Okay, thank you very much, doctor. That's probably what was going on with this guy, this lavelle indifference. He got out, had no idea it was wrong to urinate on a gas pump. He had to go. He did it. But interestingly enough, the wife, like you said, didn't take him back. Yeah, I, go, I don't understand it. Well, maybe so he this, does it all the time. <laughs> yeah, he's, he's a firefighter. Maybe he's the fire hydrants, right? Yeah, you're right. Jeez. <laughs> So, all right, so let's move on. Point number three, inaccurate documentation. And this is sort of interesting. This is actually a pretty brief trial part. What the allegation from the plaintiff was that the chart wasn't accurately documented. And what they're going to try to prove is that in addition to the fact that the nurse's notes were documented, the physician didn't see them, a lot of the documentation wasn't even accurate. So listen to this line of question and question. Did you ask if they had taken any medication for fever? Answer, I had reviewed the chart and there was no medications listed. Question, did you ask the patient? Did you ask David Likens if he had taken any medication for fever? Answer, that is asked triage. I don't specifically ask that question again. Question, and at least at triage, they didn't report that he had taken Federgan that day, did they? Answer, that's correct. Question, but you never asked the patient if he had had any medication, did you? Answer, I don't recall if I'd asked or not. I don't really know this is that big of a deal for the physician. I don't know that it's our job to confirm the 20 different medicines sometimes patients are taking, but 
Michael Zook, is this damaging to the defense physician? I, I don't think so. I think he's entitled to rely on triage, which should ask that question, report all meds that are on board, all meds that have been taken. Okay. So I don't, I don't think it's that, that big of a deal. I think he's entitled to give the answers he did. Okay. We got two more points, then we're we'll get, getting to some of the uh, closing arguments. So the next one, do not lose documentation. This is a pretty interesting exchange. There's only one way it could have turned out. Question, did you see the urgent care form? Answer, no, sir, I did not. Question, did you see the phone form? No, sir. You've seen urgent care forms? Yes, sir. And you've read them and used them. If patients give them to us, yes, we read them. And you're saying you never got this. Answer, I never saw the urgent care form. What happened is the hospital couldn't find it, but the plaintiff attorney was able to find it. And all these stories about blowing stuff up into four by six foot posters, that actually was done. And I had this thing sitting on my back porch for about six months. It's exactly what it was. It was the phone form that was sent from the urgent care to the ER. And the plaintiff attorney was able to find it, but the hospital was not. Is this more damaging to the defendant physician or damaging to the hospital? Or does it make that big a difference? I think it's damaging to the hospital. One thing that from the defense standpoint, you would say that it really doesn't matter. You have the patient comes in. He's able to give you a history. You take the patient as you find him, although some history may be important, unless it was a critical piece of information. But there's a dispute about the septic joint, whether that was ruled in, ruled out. He did not have a septic joint, as we know. So I don't think it was crucial in this case. But it doesn't look good for the hospital. The last one we'll go through here is actually the hook. This is the main part of the argument. And what the plaintiff attorney is trying to prove is that the patient had all the symptoms of necrotizing fasciitis, myositis. They were all present at the initial visit, but were not recognized. Here is the testimony. Question, so it's your testimony here today that you can state within terms of a reasonable medical probability that David Likens had no septic process occurring on March the 2nd. Answer, if that process was occurring, there were no external signs that would give us that indication. Question, well, is vomiting a sign? Answer, vomiting is a sign. Yes, sir. Question, and past fever is a symptom? Answer, yes. Question, excruciating pain? Answer, yes. So what the plaintiff attorney did is he made a chart, and again on a four-by-six-foot poster, of all the symptoms of a necrotic infection, severe pain, fever, vomiting, etc., specific mechanism, all these things, and he put that on the y-axis and then across the x-axis, he had all the different people that he had come to testify, and he made them all answer these questions, whether these signs were present, and put check marks in the boxes as he went down showing these things were present. Now, we know as physicians that these are very nonspecific symptoms. I have a fever. Well, what do you mean I felt warm? But I think it was a pretty effective way of laying out the plaintiff arguments. Mike? Uh, yes, it, it was. And that's typically what the plaintiff will do is, is try to get everyone to admit that certain signs and symptoms that are consistent with whatever pathology ultimately caused the injury or death were extant at the time of the emergency department encounter. The defense position has to be those are consistent with, but not diagnostic of. Not one of those complaints, signs, or symptoms is pathognomonic, certainly. I think that's the other side to it, but it is very effective. So we, we had mentioned before that this case is unique because Greg Henry was actually a defense witness in this case. Greg, do you remember being there for that part of the trial? Oh, yes. Absolutely. In fact, the defense team was uh, myself 
and uh, handsome Dave Talon from UCLA Harbor. We were the uh, dynamic duo in the defense uh, in this case. And it was, believe me, there were plenty of difficult questions asked of both of us. We had different purposes. Dave Talon was the proximate cause expert, basically saying that we probably weren't going to reverse this thing by the time that he became encephalopathic. I was uh, I was the standards witness, so we had actually different functions in the trial. And you have had some experience with this plaintiff attorney who spent $250,000 of his own money on the case. And we won't reveal right now whether that was successful or not. We'll do that in a little bit. What was your impression of the plaintiff attorney? Oh, he's excellent. And he's uh, smart. He knows what he's doing. He knows how to ask a question. Most importantly, he doesn't bore the jury to death. Most attorneys don't realize how, how they actually put the the juries to sleep. He knew how to get in and get out on questioning. Uh, he tested my skills, I will tell you. He was very good, and believe me, this case could have gone either way. So let me read a little bit of your skills here, and I hope you're not too shy to uh, comment on them. Shy? This is, a <laughs> <laughs> this is actually your direct examination by the defense attorney. For an emergency room physician, is history important? Greg Henry answers yes. And why? History gives us at least some indication of the disease process we're looking at. Okay, and in this particular case, was there any history other than the fact that the gentleman may have hurt his shoulder lifting a heavy object? Answer, all we have is about a day and a half history of pain. The only thing we have related to it was lifting. And so at least on a temporal basis, they're related. They later go and talk about standard of care. And I'd like to have a little discussion on that. We've talked about it a lot and everyone sort of knows the definition, but this really specifically talks about a question. Okay, now doctor, in your examination, you've determined there is no redness, swelling, portal of entry, discoloration. It's been shouted out many times in the courtroom that the physician and mid-level provider should have been thinking infection. The plaintiff attorney yells, object. He's not stating the facts underlying. The court yells out, overruled, the answer from Dr. Henry, nothing at this point in time. He looks very similar to other patients who have a shoulder pain. I would not be thinking infection at this moment in time. Question, do you send all your emergency room patients out with a diagnosis? And the answer is, I send them with a clinical impression at that moment in time, because I understand a diagnosis is sometimes not arrived at at the time of the visit. So there's two things they talk about here. The urgent care sent the patient for evaluation of a septic joint, and the patient never had that. And then the second is that the standard of care was met because based on the patient's symptoms, the diagnosis couldn't have been obtained at that time. So why don't we talk about some standard of care issues? And Greg, you had said you argued a standards defense. What was your approach to doing that? Well, my job was to look at the situation that the emergency physician was presented with and what he or she knew. And the fact that the emergency doc was never given this transfer sheet from another institution that raised any other issues. So my job was to say, what was the duty? Did he comply with that duty? Was it reasonable? Not whether it was perfect care, but whether is it reasonable under the circumstances? And did he have a system? He went home with his wife. Could he rely upon the fact she would return him immediately if his worse? Mike, what do you think? Was it effective? I think it was very effective. The jury is instructed that Medical perfection is not required, but 
to meet the standard of care, you need to use the same level of skill, knowledge, and care in diagnosis and treatment that other reasonably careful physicians in the same or similar circumstances would use. I think Dr. Henry spoke to that right directly, hit it on the head, and I think he was very effective in his answering those questions. I mean, they're softball questions, but the answers were good. And if he effectively conveyed that to the jury, he would serve his client very well. Now, Mike, Greg talked about that he was a one-two team with Dave Talon, that he did the standards uh, defense and Dave did the causation defense. And I'm going to read you a bit of Dave's testimony in just a second here. But briefly, what is the difference between the two different types of defenses? Okay. The standard of care defense focuses on the conduct of the physician. Wasn't it was reasonable under the circumstances? Did he use or she use that same level of skill, care, knowledge, training that another reasonable physician in that circumstance, in this case, the emergency department physician would use? Causation, which is the second prong and the second way you can defend a case, is notwithstanding what the physician did or failed to do, was he the legal cause of the injury or death that occurred to the patient in the case? And in California, the standard is defined not as proximate cause, it used to be, it's been changed to substantial factor. If the conduct is a substantial factor, meaning something other than a trivial factor, then it can be considered the legal cause of the injury. So as it works in the defense of a case, such as here, if you can establish through the testimony uh, by Dr. Talon or another expert that notwithstanding what the defendant physician did or failed to do, the patient had less than a 50% chance of surviving at a given point in time, then even if the defendant physician fell below the standard of care, he's not responsible legally for the patient's injury or death. Well, let me break in right there because I'm going to read you what Dr. Talon said. He is triple-boarded emergency medicine, internal medicine, and infectious disease, which is why they obviously called him. Question, would you describe for the ladies and gentlemen of the jury the mortality from necrotizing fasciitis and myositis? Plaintiff attorney yells out, object. The judge says, overruled. Answer, both are obviously bad, but the fasciitis, which is the fibrous covering over the muscles, is 30 to 50% mortality. But if the muscle is involved, the mortality is in the range of 80%. Question, do you have an opinion upon reasonable medical certainty as to whether the healthcare providers met the standard of care? Answer, yes. It's my strong opinion that reasonable physicians and physician assistants would not have made the diagnosis of necrotizing fasciitis or myositis on that date. Their care was consistent with the community standard of care. This is a very, very rare condition that lacked many of the important features that would lead a reasonable physician to make the diagnosis. I think that is a very, very strong argument for the defense because he actually talks about not only the causation or proximal cause, but also about the standards, that the diagnosis couldn't have been made and even if it was, most likely died from it with the 80% mortality. Let's close things off here with some of the closing arguments, and then we'll talk about Michael Zook's impression of the way this case went and why it went in a certain way, and we'll talk about the reason the jury gave for their decision. I'm going to do this pretty briefly. This is the plaintiff attorney's closing arguments and then the defense attorney's closing arguments, and I think they're interesting. The plaintiff attorney went a little bit on a limb here, and uh, you'll see how he does that in just a second. There were 5,000 pages of trial testimony. So we have summarized so hopefully the, the most important parts of that. Plaintiff attorney says in his closing arguments, and I ask you, in light of the testimony of the urgent care physician who threw the ER physician a lifeline, David, go to the emergency room, end quote. And at the emergency room, the triage nurse didn't meet the standard of care. 
then the physician assistant didn't meet the standard of care, and then the doctor didn't meet the standard of care. That's the lifeline. And they called the primary physician to close the loop. They closed the loop all right. The plaintiff attorney takes a piece of rope out of his pocket, and he ties a large knot with a loop, and he holds it out to the jury. And he says, instead of giving him a lifeline, they gave him a noose. This case needs no convincing. I ask the question, what is fair? What is just? What is the standard of care? I await your verdict so I can tell the captain that his chip is over, his prize is won, and that you will post the conscience of this community so these defendants stop looking and listen to ordinary people because this courtroom is for victims. I believe that with all my heart. Thank you, ladies and gentlemen. Michael Zook, have you ever heard a plain closing argument like that one? Not in a long time. That's <laughs> something that, that you would see back in the 70s or 80s. <laughs> Modernly, I don't think that's an effective argument. Nowadays, I think that reeks of, of, of theatrics more than substance. And when you put in distinction with the defense attorney said, as you'll get to next, I think you'll see a big difference. I think that for the jury to buy the plaintiff's closing argument, they have to make the doctors and the hospital bad people that just didn't care. But we know the opposite is true, as we'll see later. So go ahead. Well, first, Greg, this trial took three weeks. You were not there for the closing arguments. I did not hear the closing arguments, but I've heard lots of closing arguments. And <laughs> and the idea that this was just from the 70s or 80s, I've heard them in the last two months. If you're a right-thinking American, we'll never hear his voice in the church choir again kind of thing. Those kind of arguments are still used, and with great effect, by the way. I was, I was once uh, crossed in a big, huge conference by Jerry Spence. And uh, if you don't think gunning for justice, Spence, can't use those things, believe me, they can. I bet the defendant position was shaken in the boots a bit e- either way after the plaintiff closing arguments. But they do leave the defense arguments for last because we are hopefully innocent until proven guilty. So here are the defense attorney's arguments by Neil Friend. This is the summary, obviously. When we selected you folks as jurors, I played a portion of the tape to show you the beautiful family of David and Jill Likens. I did that for a reason. I'd like to share that reason with you. I know from my life's experiences how I react to the death of loved ones, and I know how you react to the death of a loved one, and yet we expect you to come in here and judge us fairly and impartially. We ask you to decide the case on the facts. I was thinking, okay, how are we going to do this? And I thought that we'd approach it like doctors approach the case. In fact, what you're doing in this courtroom is making a diagnosis. And how are you going to make that diagnosis? By looking at the facts. And you're going to render a verdict, which is your diagnosis. Hindsight is twenty twenty. I want you to judge the caregivers from the information they knew or should have known at the time they evaluated David Likens, independent of compassion or sympathy. When you go back there and you're deciding about whether the doctors and folks at Shady Valley Hospital met the standard of care, judge these folks as the facts existed and as the signs and symptoms existed at that time. And if you do, I'm convinced you'll make a decision that's favorable to them. This is not a send a message to the world case. I expect that you'll treat Jill Likens and her family fairly, and we simply ask the same. So, ladies and gentlemen, it's been a long four weeks. I thank you for your attention. I hope I haven't bored you too much. I look forward to your verdict. Is that a Mike Zook closing argument? I think that would be something that I would try to emulate for the following reasons. One thing in the interest of time you left out was he really highlighted the causation defense. And I think that, coupled with his request the jury review the case prospectively rather than retrospectively, really was effective. That 
based on the information at the time, could they have reasonably made this diagnosis at the time, not in hindsight, but all the pieces of the puzzle together? And I think that was effective. You couple that causation defense that the uh, myositis is 80% mortality rate, and he clearly had it in the muscle, not just the fascia, I believe, was borne out later on, that then the jury could, could send this nice family away with a defense verdict, feeling that the doctor did what he was required to do, and no matter what, this patient unfortunately had the disease that was fatal. So I do think it was very effective. Greg, do you want to tell us how the case ended? Before we get into the details, uh, let me paint a picture of a courtroom. We all know what an emergency department looks like. It's chaos. The courtroom never reflects what happens in an emergency department. First of all, it's during the day. It's Monday through Friday. It's people who have a job who punch in, come in and go home. The judge sits in front in all of his majesty and is elevated. The teams clearly divide up. There's a plaintiff's table. There's a defense table. They sit there throwing terrible looks at each other. Understand this is battle. There's no attempt at the mutual seeking of truth. This is warfare. This is advocacy. Well, it's very good that, that this ended in our favor. You've got to remember, everybody in this case knew everybody. I've known Neil Friend for 20 years. David Talon and I have known each other for probably 25 years. I'd actually run into the plaintiff's counsel before. I will tell you that right till the family came back, Neil Friend was not convinced that they had uh, won this case, but they won this case. It had to be considered a very, very great win for, for Neil Friend because, uh, believe me, he could have lost this case. When I first reviewed the case, before knowing the result, I was convinced the plaintiff was going to win. It was a very difficult case for the defense to win. The emphasis on the causation defense, I believe, was critical. The second factor, which really doesn't come through as much, except in hindsight, is that Jury venue and jury demographics play such an important case. In Los Angeles, for example, if you try this case in Torrance or Santa Monica, you've got a great chance of winning. If you try it downtown Los Angeles or in Compton, you're likely going to lose. Same facts, same lawyers, same everything except jury demographics, jury selection. That's an important point that has nothing to do with the medicine, nothing at all. I think these guys pulled this out of their butt. <laughs> that's what I think. Rick. Rick, no offense, but that's why you hire the dream team. Uh, and, and, it's, the, it's, and, the, it's the delusion team. Well, let me just tell you, yeah, we did okay. Everything is easy in retrospect. There is no perfect case. Mr. Zook will tell you that. There is no perfect case. There's always going to be something you could have done better. Overall, in this case reasonable justice was served. Although, you know, I do think considering this is we're trying to kind of send messages to our listeners, you have to really be careful when, first of all, a family doctor sends somebody in. So you have already one doctor saying, you know, I, I'm a little concerned here. Then you have the physician's assistant who basically says, you know, there's just something just not right here. I'm going to ask the doctor. And I think that there's a certain prejudice that lower level cases like, you know, a shoulder strain go to the PAs. And I think that there's a certain 
ability to get sucked in by the doctor to say, well, this is obviously a lower level case, but they ignored some really, really important issues. So th- so three people saw this person and uh, there was something very atypical about this. Pain out of proportion, uh, which is supposedly you're supposed to know that that's a red flag. And the fact that the vast majority of shoulder injuries, 99.999%, do not present in this manner. So I think there was this general suspicion that this was atypical, but nobody gave the patient the benefit of the doubt by doing other kinds of things. And the idea that it was missed, that this patient had a fever, and generally when patients say they have a fever prior to their arrival or or something to that effect, from my reading of the literature, they're usually, they need to be given the benefit of the doubt. I think that this was uh, clearly an un- unfortunate case, but I could certainly see how it could go the uh, the other way, except for the fact that you had some very artful lawyering going on here, and you had these experts that um, knew how to play the game. Well, I'm going to put a little framework around Rick's comments. This actually is the second case in the in our second bounce backs book, Medical and Legal. And just before the book came out, we actually performed a real trial of this case at Mel Herbert's Essentials. So a year and a half ago. And we were lucky enough to actually have the plaintiff attorney as well as Dave Talon as an expert witness come out to try this case. And they actually did that in front of a live audience. Then Rick actually was one of the panelists and (laughs) after told me how he would have voted because we had the audience before they knew the verdict, we had the audience vote. So our little jury of eight people voted again for the defendant, not quite as well. They have six out of eight as opposed to seven of eight in the real trial. But Rick, how would you have decided if you were one of the jurors? No, I, I basically thought that the um, the doctor should have paid money here. And you, you have to remember too that we were at a conference with uh, 1,200 doctors and there has to be some prejudice in favor of the doctors are right and the, and the patients are wrong. So I don't know that that was the most dispassionate audience. Um, well, it's really interesting. We, we uh, <laughs> had these, these folks and they just uh, came in and flew in and drove in. It was wild because this plaintiff attorney really wanted an opportunity to try this case again. He knew this guy, this firefighter, and the plaintiff attorney actually had been a firefighter and I worked with him, so I'd known him for years, and I think there was a real personal aspect of this case. He said he's tried seven more of these necrotizing fasciitis cases and won every single one of them. And what he thought, and, and this speaks to Greg's point, is that he was out-experted. He felt that he had local experts and the defense team had national experts. As far as the defendant goes, good work for for Greg and Dave. I will read a little bit of what the jury thought. They did a perception study and actually the plaintiff figured, hey, quarter million dollars, I'll pay a couple thousand more to take a survey of the jury, figure out what we did wrong so we can win them in the future. 53% female, young adult, ranging up to their 60s, 20% had bachelor degrees or graduate degrees. Facts supporting the plaintiff, the ED staff didn't take the patient seriously. Vomiting should have indicated he was suffering from more than just a shoulder strain. The ER staff didn't communicate with each other. They ignored the urgent care form and the triage nurse's notes. And the fact that David was a paramedic should have factored into the equation and led to more proactive approach and recognition that he wasn't exaggerating. And the facts for the defendant, the reasons they thought that the defendant made a more effective argument, 
is really putting the onus back on the patient. Mr. Lichen should have gone right back to the hospital when he woke up instead of taking a bath and he lost valuable time. And that necrotizing fasciitis and myositis is such an extremely rare condition with such a limited opportunity to make the diagnosis and provide therapy for it. So sort of how Michael Zook said that that was part of the full defense closing arguments talking about the fact that even if they would have diagnosed it, there was nothing that would have been done to be able to prevent things. So let me just bring in a couple other quick questions because obviously this is one of those cases that we see these shoulder strains all the time and we're thinking, oh, you know, who wants to spend the next four years of your life defending something where the physician actually did seem vigilant about actually going and examining and taking care of the patient. So other thoughts on this case as far as how proactively with similar patients we want to document or evaluate them so as to have a more defensible argument or to be able to actually make the diagnosis and improve patient safety? Well, the first one is the doc did go in when requested by the PA. I think that we're often too cavalier about cases that come in with quote-unquote minor problems. I think it's easier to be the doctor on the major disease side because most major disease looks like major disease. If they're having a big MI, it's simple. If they have major trauma, it's relatively simple. I think the toughest thing are diffuse symptoms without definite beginning and end to the history. I think those are tougher. It takes a much better doctor to see, as, as opposed to a, a, an acute MI with ST segment changes, to see grandma who says, I've been weak and dizzy since 1954. <laughs> uh, I, I think that's a tougher case. To think that everybody seen over in the urgent care is simple disease, that, that is a bias which will, which will do you harm every time. You know, uh, I have in front of me the Thursday, July 12th issue of the New York Times. It's in, in, in some ways, it's a very similar case. I don't know if you saw this story. It's a full page about this kid who um, is actually a very brilliant kid. The title is, An Infection Unnoticed Turns Unstoppable. And basically, he went to the family doctor with a scrape on the arm was complaining of some pain in his leg, sent him to the ER, and they have a copy of the, of the kid's ER chart, at least part of it, in the newspaper, oddly enough. The kid was in the ER for two hours and was sent home. Blood pressure was 103 over 50. Uh, heart rate was 131. Temperatures 102. Lab work did not, uh, was sent, but was did not come back until the kid had gone home. 53% banned. This kid basically... Uh, died of this overwhelming, in this case, it was a streptococcal septicemia from a scrape that he got while at, at, at the gym. But the fact of the matter is, is that these cases of these subtle killer infections, we really, really, really have to have our antenna up. This is the spinal epidural abscess. This is the flesh-eating bacteria. And in fact, there was a big case where this girl was followed, I think down in Texas, and they followed her just about every day in the in the news about what extremity was being cut off as she uh, basically ultimately survived this thing with the uh, loss of a lot of extremities. So these are nasty, nasty cases, and I think we need to have our antenna up. What we see now are all these examples of where we wind up wind up getting in trouble because of delays in diagnosis. Well, it's interesting you say that because having that index of suspicion is so important, especially for diseases like this one. There's been a lot of studies looking at 
different hospitals performing surgical procedures, and it's not really the skill of the surgeon. It's how many cases they do and how familiar they are with complications, mm-hmm. all that sort of thing. And one of the physician assistants at our emergency department, we had one of these cases, and there was a, a you know, not anything wrong was done, but a you know, bad outcome. Within maybe nine or ten months, another patient came with very similar symptoms. This guy went in, made the diagnosis, called the surgeon, and it was all done clinically within 10 or 15 minutes because he had that index of suspicion. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. it was very well done because of the fact that he was aware of it and was looking for it. So we don't want to have people making too many diagnoses and <laughs> sending people to surgery when they don't need it. But on the other hand, you know, it's that old joke, you know, have you ever diagnosed a case of it? You know, never intentionally or, <laughs> you know, <laughs> you, 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 know, you don't know what you're, you're missing if, if you're not considering it. This has been a great case, and I will remember it. I'm sure everybody will remember it because it was not simple at any level. It really did test the system. One of the reasons we do risk management monthly is because you can't personally see these cases and they are rare, the idea is to plant these seeds in people's heads that they're out there and to try to be aware of them because you won't be able to see three of these on your own before you recognize the fourth. So this is kind of like a word to the wise. So I want to thank Mr. Zook for taking his time very much. And I want to thank you for the opportunity because it's very good for me to appreciate the effort that you put into the advancement of medicine so that can prevent bounce backs. So thanks, Doc. I look forward to working with you in the future. I really, really enjoy it and happy to help. And so I want to thank Mike for bringing us this case from your second edition of Bounce Backs, which I hear has sold uh, somewhere between 400,000 and 500,000 copies. <laughs> and, uh, and I retired, retired last month. <laughs> yeah. And Greg, I, you... I, I, I can't believe who they, they've gotten Tom Cruise to play me when the movie comes out. So it's okay. Yeah, that's right. And um, do you want to do a little uh, wine of the month here, Chief? I'd love to do that. We're going on a Best Buy, and uh, this would even make Mel Herbert happy. A guy as cheap as Mel Herbert would have nothing to say about this. It is a brand-new import from Spain. It is Bodegas Castano Wineries, and they have a 2011 Molino Loco. These people are big importers now from Spain. Their red is well-rated and is at... Get this, six bucks a bottle. Now you're talking, man. Now you're talking. If if you don't like it, you can clean the drains with it. I, I can't believe the comments that are coming out on this wine at six dollars a bottle. Oh, it's it's unbelievable. Go out, get it. Uh, and the winery again is Bodegas Castano. Okay, guys, thanks very much. It was uh, uh, really nice to hear from you. I appreciate you putting this together for us, Mike. It was nicely done. And Mr. Zook, thank you, thank you, thank you for taking your time this morning. You're quite welcome, doctors. I appreciate that. Thanks so much, guys. All right, see you guys.